Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 24, Eigenrobot vs. Orthonormalist. Twenty-seven years ago, they did the MTV Unplugged show uh-huh. with Nirvana, and uh, thirty years before that was the Ed Sullivan show with the Beatles. Which means that when they did the MTV Unplugged show, it was about the same cultural distance from the Beatles as we are from that. How does that make you feel? <laughs> you know that doesn't actually throw me. Like. The Beatles, okay, so that's like 60 years, roughly? It's 57, but yeah. 57? That seems about right. Nirvana, I don't know. I mean, I think about Seattle and how much the city has changed, even in the last 10 years. Yeah, okay, that's the thing. The last 10 years have been larger and more fucked up than I think the preceding 20, and probably even the preceding 30 or 40. Don't you think? Is it more fucked up or is it more visible? And I mean, you know, for anybody listening, I, I fucking... I fucking hate Nirvana. It is just antithetical really? to the to my entire way of life and like looking at things. And All I right. have basically always hated them. Okay. You can write off whatever he says after this. But go on. <laughs> um, I mean, I was, I was the anti-teenager teenager, right? Yeah. My teenage rebellion was against the concept of teenage rebellion. And I was self-aware of this as a teenager. Uh-huh. So, so Nirvana is not exactly something that was ever in my court. But, you know, making people feel old is always fun. It's yeah, always been fun. But okay, by the time you were a teenager, Nirvana, I mean, like, Nirvana was kind of gone, right? I mean, Kurt Cobain had been dead for but 10 it, years it at least. It was still like a teenager band. It's the, you know, it's it's the how teenagers feel band, kind of. Yeah. But I, do teenagers feel like that anymore? No, but, you know, I was a teen in the 2000s, and that was still pretty... Like the 2000s were much more an extension of the 90s than the 2010s were an extension of the 2000s. Well, that's an that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, like maybe maybe the maybe the aughts were like a dark 90s. You know, there was all this optimism, and the aughts were like the wired 90s. Wired like the magazine. Wired like TV show. Internet. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was the internet enabled 90s. Weren't the 90s the internet-enabled 90s? Uh, not to the same degree. Yeah. Like MySpace. I mean, think of, think of the, you know, think of of the 2000s as really, in many ways, the, the MySpace era. Mm. I think of it as the Zombocom era, or like the Newgrounds era. I mean, there, there's that too. Um, we're, we're still in the Newgrounds era, actually, you know? Are they still around? Newgrounds has had like a renaissance with um, various... You know, uh, flash game sites going down and porn hosting sites for for like erotic games going down. Newgrounds has actually gotten a huge surge in in usage in the last few years. That's amazing. You're the man now. Dog is gone. Uh, maybe isn't maybe I thought it was. I, I mean, I, I was never really heavy YTM and D user. Yeah. Um, no, you, Newgrounds is Newgrounds still kicking. Um, I think they're involved in like the Flash Archive project. There's like mm. people working on doing Flash emulators and stuff bless them um <laughs> flash yeah maybe maybe like maybe the 90s was too incipient i mean the what, what did you get on the internet that's it i should ask more people that question how long have you been on the internet? i mean i was on the internet pretty pretty young like i was seven when i had my first computer yeah um and astonishingly i developed but what what year uh Late nineties. I'm not going to give details, okay, but yeah, late nineties. Okay. 
um, my dad was on the internet. Well, he was on ARPANET. Mm. So, well, he had a three, he had a three digit ARPANET ID. So he, he was, he was on the internet, so to speak, way, way, way back. Yeah. Okay. He's got me. Uh, we've got a cat running around. Um, that's, I, I wonder if that's important somehow. Like at what time did, which wave of eternal September did you participate in? If any, and I don't know. I mean like pre pre eternal September people feel like maybe that's different. Maybe that's different somehow. Like maybe you're a different kind of person like chaos. For example, when I had him on, he seems like he's, I don't know, a, a member of an older, some kind of an older cohort and not just an age, but an experience, you know? Well, I think there's a lineage aspect to it, right? It's not actually so much when you came on, it's who you hang out with. Right. Hmm. So, so I spend a lot of time talking to, um, people like like Morlock and and people in that group who were you know active in Usenet back in the early 90s and yeah. i think that gives pers- you know historical perspective and a sense of continuity somewhat um, and it gives you kind of a model of what you can try to get back to yeah i mean like i, I wonder i wonder if there's an extent to which people who had their formative experiences on the internet in, in some specific subculture or another end up being just permanent culture carriers for that. Like there's the, you know, the goon channel wars, for example, like ongoing forever. And I wonder like one, one way that you could explain that maybe like this continuing thing is like people had those formative experiences on those sites and then just carried it on forever, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and really, and this is something that, that, definitely frustrates a lot of people you can still see a lot of the um or you could see at the start a lot of the culture that permeated 4chan towards the beginning did take significant genetic material from something awful um yeah and you know the lower quality posts than were allowed more shit posting um but that's that is literally its own topic and that's that's like something you need people to come out from all directions uh, the history of something awful, the discussion with 4chan, yeah. you know, 4chan's evolution in into into you know internet activism with the project Chanology. Oh, Chanology! Um, <laughs> I've forgotten about that. Something awful's you know kind of loss of their right wing cohorts due to tox clauses in the 2008 and 2012 elections and the rise of LF. And so that I know less about. I mean, I know about Hell Dump. So I want to say it was 2000. And, uh, People give Helldump a lot of shit, and I think they do it because Something Awful produced people who are still relevant today. Yeah. But Helldump as a thing itself, as terrible as it was, is not stand out terrible compared to other things that were on the internet at the time. So, like, I'm, I'm not going to say that the way they acted was good, but I'm also going to say plenty of sites that pe- have become irrelevant since that many people have used have did very similar things. Yeah. Um, and if you look at how talking about Helldump is a way to attack the people who posted on something awful. Yeah. But it's not like the people who talk about it don't necessarily sometimes do that sort of thing themselves today. Sure. Um, so that's that maybe that'll cause a little bit of controversy. But no, there was an, there's this idea of tox clauses uh-huh. in something awful where like you made a bet or whatever. And if you didn't win the bet, you'd get banned. Um, Holy shit! And they had a they had a <laughs> that's actually that's amazing. Oh no, something else had great ways to generate revenue like that. Yeah, and they had this one that was basically that if you said so and so was going to win with any kind of confidence in the 2008 election, 
uh, in the political forum to, yeah. to you would be banned. And so everyone, who, everyone who's like McCain will win basically yeah. got banned. And that was like it. Oh yeah. Oh shit. Um, and then between that and also, you know, the, the libertarian sub forum, laissez faire basically. And uh, I'm getting a little hazy on my details here and I'm hoping maybe somebody who listens knows more about this, but I believe what happened is they pissed off the mods by being internet libertarians. And so basically the, the moderators declared open season on the sub forum, which is why it became completely infested and became honestly the most vituperative communist sub forum on the internet for quite a while. Really? Oh yeah. No, it got um, low tax visited by the secret service like three times because they were talking about killing the president. Um, How's low tax doing these days? Well, he's broke and has been accused of assaulting both of his ex-wives uh. Um, he's on painkillers. He may be in legal trouble. Um, yeah. So not great. <laughs> Seems like Moot's doing better. Um, I think Moot is working for Google in Japan. Yeah. Good for him. I, I don't know. I worried about him. Like the, the one time I saw him in person, he was just fucking thin. Like really. I think he just might be, it might be like that. Yeah, maybe. Very sweet guy. Huh. See, that seems like a more successful exit. You know? Bye, nerds. <laughs> see you well, later, see, Google hired him when 4chan had not quite become as toxic. Like, obviously, it was known as a toxic thing, but yeah. it, it hadn't become part of the strong meta narrative of today's politics, right? So, this was like 2012, 2013. Yeah. And he had so he, he exited and he did some startup. Uh, Canvas, I think it was called. Okay. And so, and that didn't go anywhere. And then Google hired him. And I don't know what he's doing. Um, I don't cares? know that Google knows what all of their employees do. Um, I wonder about that. Hire PhDs to work as janitors. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like Google. I don't know. Do do a lot of these firms have a reputation for monitoring their employees? I mean, I know. I think Amazon had something like that, right? I think they monitor certain types of things. Yeah. Uh, I think Amazon probably watches <clears throat> for union type activity. Yeah, pretty specifically. Hard. Um, and, you know, I think that Google probably watches for union type stuff pretty hard too. Um, I don't think they, I, I think that, that it's hard to put together a full surveillance pipeline. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that they haven't done it. But that, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily in their interests yet, especially when you can lean on your your employees tattling on each other. God, that's beautiful. So at the peak of uh, of the um, God, what were they? The GDR's internal police. Yeah. What were they called again? Um, NKVD, I think. No, that would no, that was that was um, that was Leninist. Or, or that was the precursor to the, um, yeah, to the, uh, whatever the hell the Soviet. Yeah. Anyways, I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. Um, anyways, at their peak, I think it said they had 90,000 full-time, uh, employees uh-huh. and another 120,000 informants. So 200,000 people doing informing or whatever in the, uh, in the GRU. And their population can't have been 
and I'm, I'm not looking at my phone or anything. So it can't have been more than what, 20 million tops. That's like 1%. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, hold on a second audience. I'm getting another beer. This is fine. This is fine. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean like, so one person that you said informants were at like one percent. Oh, employees and informants, secret police plus you know staff plus informants, one percent. Yeah, which is about what China I think does. Yeah, but a lot of what China does is automated. I mean, I think I think that internet, China has a shitload of sensors. Yeah, they've got a shitload of sensors. They've got a shitload of people who like go in. Uh, what is it like the three cent army or whatever? Fifty cent army. Fifty cent army. Yeah, and like Wu Mao, uh, I think. And like, so they've got that, and then. I don't know. I mean, there's like just everything being electronic makes it easier to do at scale, you know? Yeah. So I think China has 150,000 sensors. Everything they do is mass scale. Um, that's, that's like what the total number of people who work at Google, right? Uh, I think Google is less than that. That's that's Amazon. No, sorry, not Amazon. That's Microsoft numbers roughly. Okay. That's man. That's um. That's funny to me because it's really hard to do content moderation at scale. And I mean, like you think about what you, the, the stories that you hear about content moderators at different firms making these completely arbitrary and fucked up decisions and like trying to think about what it would be like to expand that to an entire country. They've got to be terrible at this, like not even anarcho tyranny, just absolute chaos. Well, it feels Erosian. It's it's definitely it's definitely um, chaotic, but it does help that they get to control within a perimeter. Yeah, um, leaky perimeter, but still a perimeter. And you know, it, it it chaos on the margin at scale just gives you you know when you zoom out far enough, it still works, right? Yeah, you know, it's like when you zoom in when you're making a paint image and you see that your nice curved line is actually a bunch of shaded gray areas. I think it's kind of like that for society. I mean, think of how many relatively true things I say relatively true because, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to get into the actual data points about COVID that people just refuse to believe for whatever narrative reason. Like look at people going on about Ron death Santis and how he must be hiding half of the deaths in Florida. Right. So, so I think, you know, as long as you control your margins, you can keep your narratives pretty. I mean, I, I, I refuse to believe a lot of COVID statistics, but I feel like I do it pretty evenly just because I don't feel like I know too much about data and I just don't trust any of it. I mean, like it feels like it's almost pure noise, right? And absent a clear understanding of what people's motives are in generating different data series and the process. You have to look at how it was generated. Like you, you really need to have like a lineage history to go, go see the entire and who has time for that? It's much easier just to like not believe it as um, a baseline. Polymath, apparently. Poly, yeah, poly. God, poly. We love you. We love you, polymath. Please never change, but also like take a break sometime. Seriously, please take a break sometime. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's a, uh, it's it's interesting, and I think I think that that getting away from the narrative is one of those difficult things, right? So so I talk a little bit sometimes about um kind of street epistemology yeah and i would love if everyone had a good kind of street epistemology but you know historically speaking that's not something that you can assume that your population as a whole will have yeah uh so 
I mean, there's no, there's no solution to whatever problem I'm talking about here. Yeah. I think your best bet is just to try to encourage it in your social groups and know people who aren't crazy. So do you, do you think this is like, how would you write? I, I mean, I don't know. It seems like you don't identify as a rationalist or a post-rationalist. Is that uh, right? That's so, yeah. So, so I've, I've said on Twitter before that <laughs> I, uh, I have been peripheral to the rationality community a lot longer than, than even many of the people um, who I guess would be core to it um, without going into details yeah. too much there. Um, I think that, that culturally I'm sort of my own thing. Yeah. Uh, I have a hard time adapting to other people's cultural trends. Um, it seems like you fit in with UST. Uh, I like you guys. But it's it's both new and old post rats are a little bit. Um, you guys are are so 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 new post rats are too aesthetic and old post rats are too wishy washy. Wishy washy. Tell yeah. me about that. Uh, I like driving towards more clarity. Even when things are unclear, I want to map the shape of the lack of clarity. I think there's some of that that's going on. But the amount of unclarity, like, I think there's a there's a rates problem right now where the rate at which things are becoming unclear or even the rate at which things that were fine being completely tasked and unclear. I was thinking about this the other night, like, and I've, I've eaten very little today and this is my second beer and my tolerance is terrible, so bear with me. <laughs> but, but I was thinking about how, like, if you have a say, let's just say a society, a system, if you have a system where there are some aspects of it that have not been perturbed, there can be a lot of function of that system that you can just kind of wave away and assume is just functioning correctly, even without really understanding why it works or how it's working. But then if you change something in the system, those, those parts of the system that have not been perturbed for a while suddenly stop working or stop producing results that they used to then you suddenly have to understand what's happening there in order to go in and and like solve these broader problems in the system. And pretty quickly, if you if you have a major, major perturbation and things just start falling apart completely, like it feels like you get to this crisis point where everything is failing at the same time and you can't just like investigate some minor thing that's out of sync. You you, you have some kind of, I don't know, it's almost stops being epistemological and starts being ontological. So, so I think, I think a way to look at it is UST is the type is, has a lot of people or to the degree there's a lot, it's really not that many people, right? Um, you have people who enjoy things like Cohen's. They like, they like the, un, the, the doubt that can be spoken of is not the true doubt, right? Right. The UST that can be <laughs> exactly exactly yeah, okay. Whereas I'm the type of person who likes to explain jokes. I find it funny to explain jokes. Can be, and I think those are kind of oppositional reflexes. I think that's true. Um, but complimentary sometimes. You so know? so the uh, I talk about this sometimes. The the Dwemer in the Elder Scrolls setting. Mm-hmm. Uh live in it lived in a setting where asshole other elves could literally do poetry and dance to retroactively change the course of history 
and the Dwemer were like, this is bullshit. So they built themselves a giant god mecha and zero summed themselves out of out of existence in the attempt to ascend. And I, I have a lot of sympathy for that it type like of was, perspective. And I, I completely identify <laughs> with the other ones. I mean, like, yeah, this, this is like literally how things work. The all, whereas the Aldmer were like, we're going to do poetry and it's going to make houses. That's and then, <laughs> that's how things work. I mean, okay, that's maybe a little too literal, but also like, and the drummer were like, "Fuck this shit, we're out." Yeah, um, I've never played. Yeah, yeah, and I, I probably screwed something up. Um, because that's, that's because good, though because nerds Elder good. Scrolls, well, Elder Scrolls is difficult, and and you you have issues where like the main writer for Morrowind has a different view on canonicity than the people who are in charge of the lore officially. And like it, it gets very, very complicated. Um, but I know enough to know that that when this guy was like, "Well, west is the past, and east is the future," and when you travel west and east, you are traveling in the past and the future. Hmm. Um, and I'm like, oh, you know what? You got to stop somewhere, Kirkride. Anyways, divergence aside. No, I uh, I don't really fit super well into any spaces. Uh, and I say that even as someone who has a habit of creating spaces. Yeah. So so I obviously have my forum, um, aristalis.xyz. People should go and click the link to apply. Oh, yeah, shit. That's yeah. fine. That's fine. And, and, you know, it's a space that I made for people who are kind of broadly culturally like me. But even then, um, it's it's not people that I close align with as closely always as I might like. Yeah. Um, just cause I, I'm a very strange person and I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Um, so it, it's filled with Catholics and I love you Catholics, but it, you know, I'm a secular Jew. Uh, and there's, it's whenever I create spaces along some facet, it always turns out that the other facets that map to this thing are aspects that I don't really hold true of myself. So I, I drift between a lot of different kind of Twitter, Twitter groups. Um, and I think maybe part of this is why I come off as a little bit off-putting to people is like, I can go hang out with, um, this group or that group on Twitter, but my, my, the, the pieces that come with that don't map, don't really come with it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. having trouble phrasing this. No, I think that's fine. Well, so like, what if that's fine? You well, know? I'm not saying it's a problem. Um, but it is, it is interesting thinking about where you sit in a social graph well i I mean even even more than that though what i'm thinking is like so i don't think that the post rat sphere on twitter is is necessarily there there is kind of an intellectual stance or intellectual is not even the right word there is kind of a stance or a vibe to it and i think it's hard to identify what even holds people together, what areas of commonality are. And I'm not sure that there is anything. Well, sure. It's, it's the aesthetic. It yeah. is, it is the, the, um, the generation of the exoteric via the esoteric uh-huh. and sort of the, the more heavy rationalist stuff. Well, the, reason that's good. They, the more re- heavy rationalist stuff. And the reason they meet in the middle is kind of the opposite. You have very explicit of the, the uh, exoteric to generate the esoteric. Right. Uh, And I kind of sit in between these two things, Um, which is to say I have, I am very, very liminal. I'm very, (laughs) very clear and focused, but it's almost entirely within myself. Um, I have very little interest in um, 
this whole discourse around vibe and such. Yeah. Because it's put into very imprecise terms. Um, I want words to mean things. I want to deconstruct why certain feelings cause this thing. But I'm also a little bit more narratively driven, I think, than what you find in parts of the rationalist community. Um, yeah. You know, that, and that, that maybe that's why I've become more, I guess, right wing, uh, which is that I think that the narratives of cultures are important to maintain. Mm. Um, that's really okay, important to maintain. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. What? That's, that's maybe interesting. So you've become more right wing. Uh, yeah. So I have definitely become more right wing. And another part of that is probably, um, so I don't, I think part of that is being in a long-term relationship. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure how much of it is uh, because of planning for the future, which is something I've always done and how much of it is not having to deal with our insane dating environment anymore. Oh God. Uh, so, so for a little while, do you think you would have been more left-wing if you were dating? I temporarily identified as a techno progressive and I found like ways that I could theoretically fall into feminist big tent stuff. (laughs) I mean, you know, I can talk a little bit about my history here, but if you want my, yeah, my, you know, my longest relationship is the one I'm in. Um, aside from that, my first relationship was a year and a half, and that's kind of irrelevant to all this. But a girl that I dated for quite a while, um, I was the only man she'd ever, like, long-term dated. Uh-huh. Uh, she'd come out of a lesbian relationship that was five years long. And so all of her friends were, like, LGBT, feminist, whatever stuff. Oh, and so, sure. like, finding finding ways to express myself that wouldn't totally wreck that social structure was yeah. was a was a mechanism. Um yeah, I'd say I've probably come more right wing. I've become um, some of some of it is viewed like change in philosophical views, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and and not in a particularly flattering way. Um, I think I've become more more comfortable with the hypocrisies of the ruling elite through history. Yeah, uh, that that it makes sense to have one set of things that you say and another set of things that you do because making legible the fact that you can't always suggest for the average person the set of things that might be fine for a non-average person to do yeah um and i mean i can i can you know use myself as an example is i was a player for a few years in dc um I, which I've, I've hinted at, but I, 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 I was looking for a relationship, but I was a little so bit of a player. <laughs> and, and I think that type of thing can be tolerated, but I don't think it should be encouraged. And so it's really hard to draw that line of tolerated, um, but not encouraged. Um, and like who can do it and who can do it and all that stuff. And I think that it's probably best to, discourage it um and then when people are capable of evading the public eye on this type of thing then you don't you don't you don't need the inquisition to go after them right yeah man i one one thing that's left me pretty i don't know black pilled isn't the right word but feeling quite a lot more negative about certain i don't know partly individualistic but also sort of not liberal exactly but 
a certain amount of permissiveness is like hearing just about how some of Moon's um, like relations in and the the relatively blue collar city where she grew up have been operating and you know she she adopt her family adopted a number of kids from from foster care and just hearing about those kids biological families and what they're capable of and just what their capacity is for you know making good decisions that that would result in them having a stable life and being able to take care of kids like they are not the sort of people who are going to be able to just go and easily get a career and keep to it and have the executive function to say, use drugs regularly or even possibly at all and continue to function on, you know, this, um, this, this bubble of, of stability that they might want that, you know, other people might say would constitute a good life and to suggest like, Hey, yeah, you know, like go and use pot recreationally, like it's fine. Well, I mean, like, maybe for somebody who really has their shit together and who's endowed with a certain amount of control over themselves and the rest of their lives in other ways. But like, you know, I don't think a lot of people necessarily have that kind of a capital and, you know, it's one thing to throw people in jail for possessing pot, but another thing to say like, yeah, this is totally fine. Go and do it. And there has to be some kind of a space between we're going to punish you for this. And like, you know, this is great. You were permitted to punish yourself with this. Yeah. 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 And I think this is actually one of those, a lot of our, the problems that we see, you have the same root issues leading to many different problems and I'm not discounting payoff. So I'm not saying like now is better or worse. I think in general, I would choose to live now other than any other point in history. And we can talk about that more. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't costs. I want to talk about those costs for a second. Yeah, do it. Go on. And it's, it's that, we have this kind of structure where anything in certain areas, anything that is legal and often more than legal, not only is permitted legally, but it must be permitted culturally. Um, it's, it's like, because the law is following behind the culture and there's obviously inevitable links there, there's this attitude that like, you can't have really strong norms against drug usage. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that's right, but at the same time, because we have flattened our communication landscape, it's hard to have strong silo, strong normie silos of um, norms. So like, I think maybe it's healthy for, for these areas to have very, very strong norms against drug usage and against out of wedlock marriage and stuff. But with a flattening of culture, you know, maybe you need to have, and this is, this is going to sound bad a threat of social, not economic, but a small threat of social shunning at the local level that basically says, if you don't work within the social norms, right, you don't get to participate socially. I would so take that trade off. But it's a, it's a local thing, right? Mm -hmm. And it can't be a legal thing. And the flattening of communication makes this an issue. And I, I'm very tentative yeah. about this. Getting into social punishment is one of those areas I feel kind of uncomfortable with. Yeah. You know, there's the scarlet letter. There's the, the modern cancel culture stuff. But if we look at what worked, if I step away from like what I feel, what I prefer, right, which is the whole point of this. Yeah. You know, you read Tocqueville and he's like, America is incredibly censorious in a social enforcement 
method. And that did work for a while. I don't know if it would work again. Obviously, we are where we are today from a sequence of steps that started there. But I don't help but wonder if we don't need stronger culture in some of these places. But we can't really have it because, you know, you hop on Twitter and culture is flat, right? It's not totally flat. Um, you know, it's kind of demographically flat. That's, man, okay. So you mentioned the Scarlet Letter. And this is very interesting to me. I think there's been this trend, I, I mean, like, and given what you read on a regular basis, I'm, I, I, I have ideas about what you think of it, but, you know, there's been this idea of like decolonizing the way that we teach literature to kids, for example. And one thing that maybe isn't mentioned enough is that if you were to take American literature in particular, there's kind of this, you know, Tocquevillian exploration of the character of American culture, which maybe has changed externally, but I think has remained somewhat consistent on a deeper level over time. And it might be the case that, I think it's the case that if you look at what high schoolers were- I mean, we're a pair of Anglos, so I'm not sure, I'm not sure if we're the- Well, you're you're an Anglo-Jew and I'm also sort of an Anglo-Jew, come to think of it. I mean, I have more German in me, I think, but- um, and I mean, yeah, like, so, I, I, I had ancestors on the Mayflower, you know, but but I mean, the character has has the character of America stayed the same over time, and that's that's not a rhetorical question. That's a yeah, you know, if do the do the great books, um, the, the when I say the great books, I don't mean the broader set. I mean um, the great books, of the Western World Collection, uh, selected by Adler, which is really about the lineage of thought that gave rise to America in many ways. Um, does that speak to people who can't have heritages that didn't follow that one? I, this, well, to the same degree. Well, I mean, like, I I think America has done a really good job of assimilating just about everybody, no matter where they're from. And, like, I, you know, there's, there's this common argument that social justice stuff is just kind of this, um, you know, Puritan Quaker hybridization. And I, I think I personally buy that. And if so, I mean, it's like maybe – Maybe it doesn't speak to them, but that's just because it's fuck or right. Like if you look at the Scarlet Letter and you're like, hey, what does this look like to you now? What is actually being said by this book? Maybe it's maybe it's an attack. I mean, it's partially the I think I think when we talk about it being the Puritan, this Puritan thing, we're talking about certain parts of the academy. Um, but I think that it's actually not just that. Like you can't say that that uh, the the attempt to make religion um, a socialist effort is that because that's something that we saw, you know, arise out of absolutely non-Puritan areas. Um, And so I think it's a lot of people come to it for different reasons. And while it's fun to say that these hyper, um, these hyper atheistic um, Ivy league professors are coming at it like Puritan preachers from 200 years ago, yeah, years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to make that kind of like. Oh, you say you're an atheist, but you're actually no. I I, I know that, but like, you, there is like a kind of a poking fun, like you yeah, know, yeah. inversion of expectations of of uh, you know, um, Elizabeth Warren as a as a uh, Goody Warren, right? <laughs> and uh, but but uh, that's just one piece of it. And I think that maybe it's 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 attempting to draw too much lineage um, f- 
for for the for the what the broader pieces are right so you've got you've got like liberation theology pieces and you have um that's that feels kind of american Jew, too i think those started in south america Did, that's fair you have um and this is something Part of the that creole tradition is probably probably something you should have uh Svi on to talk to him about this oh, but oh, like yeah okay. but like uh the jewish heretical tradition um you know of, of every few hundred years looking for like a messianic effort um i don't know anything about the sabbateans really but like yeah, that was something I don't know, I that was that you them. know you had you had the sabbatean heresy and i may not even be pronouncing it right and like what what of that is represented in the people who come to it from the jewish background those are the please your shoes in the factory wheels right uh, uh <laughs> Yeah. Joke. So, so, so like, and, and, and I'm not, I'm a, I'm for people listening. I am, I am not trying to go uh, too far into the Jewish topic because I know that's complicated and it's like a, a discussion that we still have in our own social groups. And I have a hard time even saying my own social groups because like, I'm definitely not really present either in reform or Orthodox or conservative Judaism. Um, but but there is you know these these trends and each of each of these different histories needs to look at these trends. Um, I think that I don't even know what the hell we were what what the point we were driving at was. I don't um, know. I have a tangent. If you're willing, sure. So I was trying to come up with a joke, but it didn't come quickly enough. So. Yeah, no, no, it's good. <laughs> so I was I was in the shower earlier today. Congratulations! Is I I it actually honestly did, did you have a beer? I didn't, but I was in the shower and that felt, that felt like kind of an accomplishment. I mean, like baby takes up a fair amount of time, but also like I'm on leave right now and I, I'm just a fucking shambles. <laughs> I have no obligations. I at didn't all. do shit all through December. So I kind of sympathize. Yeah, no, I, I operate really well, like at 90 to 110% of capacity and I can live like this at like zero to 10%, but anywhere in between, not a stable. Point. God, I didn't do shit in December and I was meaning to finish up, um, the philosophy of right and like, um, critique of pure reason. And, uh, what, what is it? What is Veblen's big thing? Um, Veblen, the uh, economist, the leisure class. Oh, book. right. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to finish class. all of these readings I got behind on. Nope. I just laid there like a fucking log for, three weeks i'm like i'm like 40 pages into dominion by tom holland and it's so fucking good but it's just i maybe i'm just old i don't know when i when i was a kid it was so easy for me to just sit and read for 16 hours a day and now it's like i can still do that but it's all shitty serial fiction (laughs) (laughs) you you read a lot of shit I, I didn't. I didn't for three years. Yeah. I did not for three whole years because I was too focused on reading great books. And then it just work got harder and harder. Um, maybe work didn't get that much harder, but my itis increased. Oh. And now my itis is so intense that I don't want to get back from work and like do more intense stuff. I just want to do shit. Yeah. And I'm doing, I'm, I'm working on doing less shit. Um, I'm reading a book on market microstructure. That's interesting. Oh, interesting in like the incentives that how markets build their rule sets and their uh, information and uh, spatial arrangements to encourage different types of behaviors. Um, Because, you know, uh, I'm trying to get into kind of trying to get into the crypto industry. Yeah. And I think as a PM trying to sit in a space that's um, 
a little more strategic make sense versus just being another put this button there SAS PM. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so I think um so you were in the shower and you were yeah. thinking about yeah, your your Yeah, you mentioned Catholicism in particular. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I actually see a lot of parallels between Judaism and Catholicism just I don't know, culturally or institutionally. And I need to think about that before I explicate on it. But that's a, that's another Tzvi thing. Is it? Um, I'll talk about or, it. Or he might recommend someone. Yeah. I could. I wonder if I could talk to Bite My App about that. He Get both of them on at once. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, Bite My App has been, like, it, I was talking with him and Kersey, and I mean, he really prepared for this. And he was he was a very, um, like, very gracious guest, talking with a couple of people who are basically atheists, but also sort of not atheists. So, I mean, I was in the shower, and I was like, wait. Okay, so, you know, one thing that happens in a totalitarian society is that functionally there are no organizations that operate outside of the state umbrella, right? Everything in the state, nothing but the state. Yep. Is that, was that Mussolini? It's not, it's Mussolini. Mussolini. Ooh, did you, did, we're not, we're not, uh, yeah. we're not in the fate universe. We're not gender swapped. No, no, we are. <laughs> Mussolini in 2021 is gender swapped. <laughs> Too many xenoestrogens in Italian water. <laughs> oh no! Oh uh, yeah, Mussolini. Yeah, I, I, I probably fucked up the quote. But yeah, yeah. I think I know. I think that was perfect. Um, but but like, I don't know that we're actually that far away from it. I mean, there's that whole bowling alone thing, and you know what kind of organizations actually exist in the United States? And I mean, I had them. I had the urge just to like go and talk to a bunch of people in real life who socialize on a regular basis and be like, okay, such and such about society. And I didn't even have anything in mind is shit. Like, what do we do about this? And just thinking about how that kind of an organic, you know, reaction to something might arise in the United States. And there's just nothing right. Like maybe we got Q. We got, we did, we got, we got Q. And that actually feels like it feeds into my point where it's like people are mad about shit and lacking anything. I I mean, like lacking anybody maybe competent to direct it in some way, it spins off from this insane shit. And, you know, historically there would have been things like trade organizations and clubs and churches and what have you, but everything is just so completely atomized at this point. That it's, it's not just a matter of meaning for people. It's not just a matter of like having friends that they can go and, you know, share their lives with and grill with and so on and so on. But like, you know, if there's actually a problem in society, it's just a bunch of individuals who have no ability to organize. And I, I mean, I, I don't mean that in a leftist sense, but, you know, fundamentally, you can develop whatever kind of capacity you want as an individual, but that that's nothing compared to what you can do with an effective organization. And there's just no, there's just no underlying structure at this point around which people that they, they can be, you know, sort of clued into an organization for something else. And um, so, so that's disconcerting. I'm not calling the United States totalitarian or like the government has gone out of its way to cause all of these organizations to be suppressed. It's just, they've some, they, they seem like they're just dying a death. Yeah, and well, they, they, I, I, it's not even really dying a death. I think in many cases, it's more like a corpse already warmed over. Um, yeah. And, you know, this is when somebody else would probably cut in and blame the suburbs. Uh, but but I think that 
just to head off that thought, these organizations worked when people were farther apart in terms of real travel time yeah, uh, than they are today um, and had less opportunities of where they could pick to gather than they have today. So I think there's no real obvious reasoning aside from um, a, a culture that doesn't encourage it. And God knows I have no easy levers on culture uh, to talk about. Um, I mean, I, you might be able to, I don't know. My, my inclination honestly would just be the, the modern welfare state where, you know, like a lot of the, the, there's this idea that Sarah Perry wrote about a while ago about the explicit and explicit function of different institutions where, you know, just take a very simple example. Did you say explicit twice? Explicit and explicit. That seems like something I would do. I've had two beers on an empty stomach, which is enough for me. No, uh, explicit and implicit. There we so, go. So like imagine farmers, you know, you go, you work the fields, you bust your ass, you grow some food and you have food to eat. That's the explicit function of working in the field. One of the, well, maybe secondary is a better word. One of the secondary effects of going and working in a field is that you get a lot of physical activity and you get a lot of exercise and you end up relatively healthy for this. I mean, rural health is one of these like historical axioms, you know, beneath their straw hat glowed the wealth of simple beauty and rustic health. Like, so. But Farmers that, also tend to be the, tended to be the bedrock of democracies, yep. city states. And yeah. I can't remember all the game theory that talks about it, but. I think Aristotle's politics, he talks about why a strong agricultural community is one of the things that leads to strong democracies. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's partially that they have to, they are, they are apart and responsible and they have responsibility and then they have to come together periodically yep. to make choices. Yep. Very um, yeoman. Um, so, um, fuck, what were, why was I talking about this? And, oh, right. So Sarah Perry's thing. So like, but the explicit point of farming is to grow food and suppose that instead of this, like, okay, we've got modern agriculture, kicks ass, all mechanized. And now you can go and do other things to earn money and get food. Well, okay. That's great. We're still getting food via these like much more efficient means, but these secondary effects of what you were doing are now completely unattended. And, and I think that there's something similar about, um, I don't know, just, just a lot of these organizations, like, you know, the, the explicit point of going to church was to have your soul be saved and to coordinate belief in God. But okay, now everyone's an atheist because all these texts are, you know, in some way like outmoded by technology and they don't talk about cars in the Bible or whatever, whatever shit. I'm not endorsing these beliefs. I'm just presenting it as like, here's, here's a story you can tell about what happened. Um, because it comes down to what your personal opinion on, yeah. on the five ways is rather than because, because because you don't bother looking at ways to argue against the five ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, historically, like, you know, churches were really a central note of quite a few things in society. Right. Like you didn't just go to church to have your soul saved. You went to church because everybody else went to church. And you could socialize there. You went to church because that's how you, you didn't wear your Sunday best for God. Right. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, like schools were run by churches, charities were run by churches, but most of these things have ultimately been supplanted by the government 
I mean, it's true that the you know Catholics run a large number of hospitals in the United States, but the Catholic Church is unusual in this regard. And like you know, for the most part, if you go to church now, it's strictly for a religious and perhaps somewhat social component. If you live, you know, in a remote town, but I think it's more social than you would believe. Yeah, I think there's a still a significant social component to it. It's just you know, um, but I mean, like you know, if you live in a city center, like you know, like I don't go to church. Do you go to church? Like, who do we know that goes to church apart from, you know, people who are really actually pretty devotedly religious? Um, I mean, I think part of that is that, that what we would call devoted, re- devotedly religious is actually a pretty historical norm of normal religious. Yeah. Um, what they would call devotedly religious is not people who tend to be in our social groups very much. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I haven't been religious since I was 14, 15. Yeah. Um, despite various college Chabad's doing their best to get me to come to services. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think this actually feeds back into kind of what we, what we were discussing about the big two, two of the big reasons that it was worth me coming and talking to you today. Um, and one of them we talked about and another one, a bunch of people brought up in the comments uh, on Twitter, which was talking about uh, kind of where, hedging against society going to shit and what that oh yeah i want i want to get to those things yeah do you mind if i cut you off and like loop back to what yeah but yeah the first one the first one was was um kind of living well today and i think these things tie back but if you want if you want to we can we can transition to that or you can finish your thought yeah yeah let me let me frame it okay so so moon showed me secondhand lions the other day which is fucking great. Everyone great should... I think I saw that in the theater. Did you? Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Everyone go and watch Secondhand Lines. So so one of the characters in the movie has a long speech that he gives to, to, to boys and young men about what you need to know to be a man. And it's you never hear the entire speech in the movie, but it gives he gives an excerpt from it. And it's fantastic. And so in the speech. He's listing things that men should believe, not because they're necessarily true or false, but because they're things worth believing. And I'm curious whether you think God falls into that grouping or whether it could. I think it can, but I think I would have a hard time. I can make the abstract argument for society, but I would have a hard time ever making the argument directly to a person. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I don't talk about it much. Yeah. Um, partially socially, partially cause it's to be social rather yeah. partially cause it's unnecessary, but I am pretty far out there on the, um, strong agnostic borderline hardcore atheist, uh, I've, scale of things. Interesting. I've had LSD, so I, I'm not, <laughs> um, and I think this is something that, that I have in common uh, with with more infamous Twitter user uh, Aleph, uh, which, oh, which, yeah. is, which is that he also doesn't talk about it much and he likes to poke people a little more than I do. But we're both pretty far out there on the on this scale. And I don't you know, we don't need to really debate that. That's a that's just that's a fact of how I feel. Um, so it's hard for me to say to someone, you should believe in God. And in yeah. fact, I think I often have a much stronger urge to go the other way that I generally won't listen to because it's impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that it is useful for a society to believe in something. Um, 
I that's think, a fair point. I think that there's a lot of questions I have about incentives of what that something is. Um, I was talking to someone recently about the fact that I wonder, and, and this, there's a whole lot of unknowns here because I'm not a historian by any measure uh, of, of anything. I'm, I'm probably a far inferior historian of most of the people in our social group, just because I don't obsessively read about this stuff, um, looking at your own bookshelves. Um, but it, it certainly feels like um, some of the East Asian countries treated each other worse historically on an interpersonal basis than the the Western European countries. Not to say that that Western and Central Europe was nice to each other. Yeah, it's, they certainly weren't. There was lots of war, but I sometimes feel like worse things were done as the actual acts that were worse deprivations and tortures. I've been listening to history of China. It's fucked up. It's yeah. like every, and I like, can't help but wonder if it's because either because they actually believed or because there was a social norm surrounding them that Kings in Europe had this had external judgment, right? So regardless of whether they actually believed in it, right? Cause I'm sure there were Kings who were private atheists mm-hmm. or if, because they knew the people around them believed in it. Um, this maybe didn't put an absolute limit, but restrained the degree of depravity that they were willing to inflict on other Christians, right? Yeah, you should you should read Tom Holland. Whereas in the kind of the less explicit case, and I, I'm not saying that there aren't external judges in, you know, East Asian mythology, you have uh, Yama, etc., you know, your, your gar- guardians of the other world, but you have all these syncretic religions that change kind of over time and politically and geographically. There's not like this shared monolithic god with these are the rules right and i you know this in this time and place you have this particular mix of buddhism and taoism and in this place you have uh buddhism taoism and confucianism and in this place you have you know their local you have you have shinto mixed with it and here you have the celestial bureaucracy and here you have korean animism right and and definitely there were parts of this that have these external judges but it was hardly this strong solid fundamental to the society Right. Uh, and I can't help but sometimes wonder if what you believe in as your mythology can impact that type of thing. So, so I. Beliefs matter. That's crazy. Yeah. So, it's shut hard, up. Yeah. Get out. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to say, you know, just believe something. Right. Because then you get into, again, um, I clearly just pointed at a case where it might be that the, the, something they believed in mattered. Um, I think that, that, what you believe in doesn't necessarily need to be explicitly reasoned. So even when it was written, the belief that all men are created equal, uh, you know, declaration of independence was made fun of by British philosophers, right? They made fun of this. They're like, this is a nonsensical statement. You know, yeah. are men all Governor equal Hutchinson. height? Yeah. Are all, all men equal height or are they all equal? Right. But that, that idea, right. That men are, Equal, equal morally under the eyes of God, right, is perhaps a almost deistic way to get back at a lot of the stuff that you get from equal judgment, although the judgment isn't quite as explicit, right? Um, it, it implies something. And I think that it is useful to encourage belief. Um, you know, I'm not somebody who should ever be giving advice to large normal populations on what to believe because I am not a normal person and my friends are not normal people and my family are not normal people. What if that's fine? You know, it's fine. 
Um, what if that makes you better qualified to give advice? I think that there are very few people who are qualified to give advice and that maybe, you know, we'll, we'll get to this, but um, you have a problem where no one's really qualified, which means that you can't really guarantee what's going to percolate out as the central narrative. So instead of saying this is what you should encourage, maybe instead what we should focus on is which branches of the bonsai we should snip off to discourage. Because, you know, I don't think all forms of atheism should be discouraged, but I certainly think there are certain forms of atheism that should be discouraged. Yeah. Um, and again, this is, it's, it's a huge chaotic system. There is no guarantee that the impact any of us have will have the one we want it to. The Streisand effect is a great example of <laughs> the input one puts into a system having the opposite desired effect, right? So basically every economic policy nudging fucking nudging. <laughs> don't, don't get me that do beers. Don't push me. <laughs> they were still using it during COVID for their COVID policies. God, I'm so fucking mad about nudging, but like, you know, I say, Oh, you know, pick, you know, try to snip off the ones that are unhealthy memes so that the healthy ones propagate. But like I said, Streisand effect, that doesn't work. What if by trying to snip it, you actually give it a martyrdom effect, right? Yeah. Human culture is complicated. Um, so, so if you can't be, re- if you can't select what's happening on the large scale, uh, and the large scale may go in any painful direction, it's just kind of like throw up your hands and say, I'll do my best, but not make assumptions. And, and that kind of gets to, um, I think where you want to go with this, which is, you know, how do you live well, despite all of this? Um, and so that's kind of, I think the main, one of the two main topics that we wanted to talk about today. Yeah. Was living well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can, you want to, you want to kind of go into your thoughts there and I'll, I'll take off or. No, you start. I, yeah. I don't have any thoughts about living well. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck, everyone. So, so we're, we're, you know, we're 58 minutes into recording and we're talking about kind of, I think the main topic. You got two and a half minutes. Go. Go. Okay. So. JK, we can, we can go as long as you want. I know when I had Shay on, I think you went for almost two hours. So. Yeah. So I think. And, and I talk about this sometimes on Twitter. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about what it means to live well. And I guess that makes me, uh, much to my chagrin, some kind of virtue philosopher. Uh, to your chagrin? That, dude, that's awesome. Well, I don't think that's necessarily something you should chase. I think if I spent more time focusing on living well and less time thinking about it. but That seems Epicurean, which, but I thought you identified as Stoic. I identify as Stoic adjacent. Um, I think stoicism ties back into this a little bit. So, so we can ask, um, if we go back to, to the question that men ask, right, it's what is kind of, what is the purpose of life, right? That is maybe not the only question that we ask. Um, but it is definitely one of the ones that comes up a lot. Uh, sorry, stepping back another, what is the meaning of life? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that asking what the meaning of life is, first of all, is a mistake because meaning is a, and I'm going to screw up my terminology here as I do in many cases, but meaning is something where you look at a sequence of uh, a, or a sequence of tokens. um, Okay. And you interpret it and get some, something out of that sequence of tokens. Right. Uh Meaning is I look at art and it has potentially a meaning, right? I look at um, a word and it has a meaning. I can look up these things. There's a, there's like a, 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 there's a piece of data attached to that. Uh, life isn't 
a static set of tokens or token or image or logograph, right? Life is a, a thing. It is a process, right? So I think that the first, and this is just getting into wordplay, but I do think it matters in how we think about it a little bit. Life doesn't have a meaning. Life has a purpose. Um, okay. You can't just say, looking at life, like here's the sentence description meaning of it. Mm-hmm. Life has a th- life has things that it does, right? And the first the first problem here is that of course this immediately makes it more fuzzy, uh, because different you know processes have um, instead of like a static thing where I can look up a word in a dictionary and get an output, right? Processes a lot of them have um, have fuzzy boundaries on them, right? So so you know chemistry in reality is never or almost never like hundred percent pure, right? There's there's um, you have other shit mixed in a lot of the time, not yeah. always. Pretty um, much always, yeah. And and you have to deal with uh, byproducts and how you filter out those byproducts. I was so disappointed when I realized that I couldn't synthesize cocaine because there are like sixteen enantiomers. <laughs> Fucked up. Uh, so there was a frat at my college that had uh, two meth labs. Two, two meth labs. They got caught. Meth is better. Yeah. Um. So life has a purpose, and you can kind of say like, well, what is what is life's purpose? And, and there's a couple different answers here. And one of them goes down a research track that I haven't finished yet, um, which is kind of ties into entropy and, um, that sounds fake. Uh, it's, it is maybe fake. (laughs) Okay, fair. Go on. Um, it's a Schrodinger's What is Life, which is one of the most influential um, kind of booklets I've ever read. Uh, this was the same uh, Schrodinger. Influential on you? Yeah, influential on me. Um, uh, the same famous physicist Schrodinger wrote a yeah. book about life where he actually predicted more or less how DNA would work before they ever uh, imaged it. Hmm. Um, and, and basically life is this process that takes... Um, uh, low entropy. Uh, it, rather, it, t- it takes it takes scattered entropy and it turns things into like concretized um, things, but generates more entropy in the process. Right. So we build, we we shift around the pile of sand, and we make more sand by shifting it around because entropy sucks ass. Um, and that's just kind of what life does. And humans are just like the the tip of this point that we know of. We are the spikiest part of this process. Um. So that's, that kind of informs me and I've always been terrible with entropy. So like my, like, like it has never been intuitive for me, despite me doing a physics degree and all that. So, uh, any mathematicians listening, I know I fucked some of that up. You guys are gonna have to deal with it. Um, but probably so, used so, to it. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of, yeah, but I have, I mean, I have a degree in physics. I'm just not, not very good at it, but, <laughs> but class trader. So yeah, well, that's, that's my wife's job is to be good at physics. Um, so you have this, this thing where this is what life does is it rearranges information. Um, it generates more waste heat in the process of making more dense information. Um, Hmm. but that's not, that's like an external view kind of, but it does, it does matter for what I'm thinking about here. The purpose of life is to live well. That's not tautological. Um, the, the purpose of other things, like if we say, what's the purpose of running? It is not to run well. The purpose of running is to generally either to get from point A to point B or to burn calories or whatever. Uh, in this case, the purpose of life is to live well. So we could say, what is living well? And that, I think, gets us a little bit closer to, to the, the answer. 
And this is very much, again, my personal branch of virtue philosophy, not really anyone else's. It's syncretic based off of all the stuff I've read. Um, But living well means that any given point, the only regret you have in your life is that you have not yet had a chance to live more. That is my personal definition of living well. Um, that everything that you have done in your life up to that point has been justified by where you are. Hmm. And it means you can always cross back over. If you had a terrible life, if you did terrible things, right? As long as you achieve enough, if you have things that are precious to you in a non-fungible way at the moment you contemplate yourself, right? Um, You might have been a terrible person. You might have gone through all sorts of hells, right? But if you have something in your life that justifies it, when you dwell and look back and you say, because of the veil of ignorance, different, you know, I wouldn't give up this, my daughter, my, my wife, my friends, right? I went through hell, but now I'm here and I wouldn't give these up for the other side of the veil of ignorance, even if it meant I didn't have to go through these bad experiences, right? Mm. I just want more time with them. I just want more time to live. That's what I see as living well. That makes sense. Um, Apparently, this maps to some thoughts in in at least one branch of um, Eastern Orthodox, according to my my best friend's wife. Um, maps on to uh, Epicurus. It maps on his, every his deathbed quote. Um, he says something like, "Although I've reached the the point where my pains are overwhelmingly, um, they are marshaled against them." on this happy day are my thoughts of all the conversations that I've had with you all. Right. And so the only thing you should regret is that you have not yet had a chance to have more conversations in that case. And so that's kind of like a, where do, where, where do you want to be? And I'm pretty happy to say that, like, I think I've achieved that in my own life. Uh, but it, it has components, right? Getting to that point, I think you can do it kind of easily in some ways. But the question is, okay, so now that now I've kind of, I'm living well, how do I maximize that? Right. And I haven't tied all of this together completely coherently. I'm not sure I believe in coherent ethical philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that humans are complex creatures that are not, um, we are not laid out in a way such that it is easy for humans to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, we are like an evolutionary algorithm. We have, uh, mutually interfering parts that don't necessarily make sense as a human would design a system. So it's kind of hard to say this part is this, and this part is this, and this part is this. So um, they, they tie together. And the answer is that going back to what you were saying about um, churches and the explicit versus the implicit is you need to look at what the human needs, the things, the things in a human life are, and you need to kind of just make sure that you're nailing down each of those and that you have, something in each of those categories. Um, so, so now we're getting a little bit moving from, from the moral philosophy into living well in an actual sense. Um, and just as a, you know, what are my, God, there's a word for this, but what's, what's my background here? Um, so I think that you'd agree. I live a pretty decent life. Um, now granted I came from a, an, a family that I, I was, you know, reasonably privileged in terms of like, I had a middle-class upbringing. Um, I was raised with uh, a mixture of 
I guess, uh, boomer American pie and uh, silent generation values. You know, mm-hmm. my dad was silent generation. Yeah. Um, I have, I have, I've been healthy. Um, I'm smart enough. Um, and so I, I do have all of these things that, you know, like I haven't had major issues in this area to overcome. And that's, that's always worth acknowledging just briefly. Um, I'm not going to drag my heels in the sand and like do it constantly because I don't think that you can give people advice on becoming more if you're constantly undercutting yourself by saying this only, you know, don't worry if you can't do this, don't worry if you can't do this, but I'm going to give people advice on becoming more. That's, I was going to say like, so like if, if you were to cut all of this down for like, you know, IQ 90 people like me, like if you were to try and boil (laughs) this into, into something that was, you know, a little bit, do, do you think that's possible? Because I think I, I, I think, think about I, I, living well. You have to make it. It kind of is, but but I've you know I'm focused a little bit on on people like me. I think it's almost easier for you know people who are operating normally. I'll say, read a book, make friends with your neighbors, and lift weights. <laughs> like <laughs> that's that that gets you like ninety percent of the way there, but if you want to kind of understand more, it's, it goes further. Right. So, so I've, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty fortunate guy. And some of that comes from my upbringing. But if I also look at how I've succeeded compared to, you know, most of the people I know, um, I have done more and done better. And I think some of that comes from intent. It's not like it was just something that happened to happen. Um, you know, I'm not the richest. I'm not, I don't have, you know, nice Y combinator, uh, you know, I successfully Y combinated when I was 22 and then I sold it five years later. And now I have, you know, uh, $30 million I'm doing charity with. I'm definitely not in that type yeah. of situation. Um, but you know, I have a nice house and I have a nice wife and I'm probably one of the strongest people in the country. And, uh, I'm really, yeah, ortho is ortho is fucking ripped. <laughs> That's not coming through over voice. He he's absurd. Yep. Um, and it's, it's just living with intent. Right. So I have kind of a breakdown and I don't have it written out here, Um, but you can think of all the different ways that things that you can work on. And honestly, you don't need to work on literally everything, but there are broad categories. Um, It is reasonably easy to be in shape. Um, I'm not going to say that it's equally easy for everyone. And I'm not going to say that the willpower is trivial to come up with. Um, I hate running. I haven't done cardio in like a year now. Um, I have a treadmill that I'm waiting to move down into my basement uh, so that I can watch finance lectures because not because I want to be more productive, although there is that, but because I hate running and I hate watching lectures so much that doing it at the same time somehow negatively cancels out. Um, But lifting weights, getting into like a decent physique is three hours a week, four hours a week. Like, like I said, I have a national class physique and I train maybe four hours a week. Um, I deadlifted after six months out of the gym, uh, six, so let me phrase that six months out of the gym, but not without training. I have a home gym. Um, I deadlifted 525 last night, um, when I've only been doing 425 for, didn't your wife tell you to back off so that like you didn't injure yourself before she gave birth? Uh, I'm going to back off the next couple cycles, but this was our first time. Yeah, no, the 525 came up fast. Um, so I'm 163 pounds. Uh, so, so like I only train like four hours a week. Um, 
and I train a little bit more when you're coming over just yeah. to, just to hang out. But like in general, it's about four hours a week. Um, so you that's should, absurd. <laughs> yeah. So you should you should do something physical. Um, having having strength is is good for its own sake. Um, it's good because it lets you kind of be more in tune with your body. Like there's definitely a better like mind body unification for at least a lot of people. Um, the process of becoming strong teaches you nutrition in a kind of skin in the game kind of way. Yeah. Uh, I think people who don't get exercise nutrition of often feels very arbitrary. Um, it's like, okay, I need to eat this much protein, but like, what's the, what's the benefit? What's the trade-off? Uh, on the other hand, I, I eat half really well and half like a garbage disposal. Yeah. Um, I don't get enough fat. I don't get enough micronutrients. Um, and so sometimes I'm like, is this fake? I didn't notice my lifts change. <laughs> so, so physical is one. Um, I would say some kind of strength training, some kind of cardiovascular training. Um, and then if it's not covered by the other, some kind of um, uh, dynamic um, skill, uh, reflex training, rock climbing, um, dancing. Uh, dancing is great. Uh, maybe martial arts, uh, although that obviously carries some risks to it. Something that involves uh, coordination, basically. Uh, I think that mental um, has kind of an intrinsic extrinsic thing piece to it. Um, and, and so there's an essay uh, that I can't remember the name of right now, but there's two types of literature. Um, there's literature of knowledge and there's literature of power. Um, literature of knowledge is everything that teaches you facts about the world. Now, the world might be, um, you may be the world here. So it could be facts about yourself, right? Like I'm learning about how the human body works. That would still be a fact about the world. It's a, it's an extrinsic knowledge of the world. You're not really changing how you interact with it so much as getting better information about it. And I think that's kind of useful to engage with, but you can also engage with that almost entirely with, um, career literature. If you want, you don't have to, but you can. Um, and that's, that's, that's important but the other piece is literature of what he calls literature of power who's um, he i can't remember the name of the yeah. I, I think i can look it up really quickly um it's one of the most important essays i've read so i'll actually take just a moment to look this up yeah look it up i, I actually have a question for you go ahead so in tarot there are four suits uh, the suits are the suits are wands and cups and swords and earth and or yeah i'm sorry um pentacles or it's a thomas de quincey the literature of knowledge and the literature of power okay and and knowledge and power respectively are things that you would probably assign to respectively wands which are uh, have have a bunch of esoteric meanings but roughly relate to like passion and power and Swords, which roughly relate to intellect and thought and, and, you know, air, whatever that means. And both of those are specifically identified as, as masculine, whereas cups and coins or pentacles or whatever are, are both explicitly feminine in, in the way that they're interpreted. And I'm curious if there is something about the ethics and sort of like way of living that you're describing that are explicitly masculine and, and perhaps it doesn't generalize to 
to women or to the feminine. Does that sound right to you? Well, traditionally, I identify best with the coins, given my own ethos. Yeah. So that's that's it's interesting. No, I think, oh, I think that tarot has to stretch in some ways. I'm not a big, sure. I mean, like, I'm not. I'm yeah, not, I think that that I have very strong biases towards the masculine, and yeah. I think I think that's that's something I've talked about on Twitter, and I'll I'll come back to. Uh, or maybe actually I can diverge here, which is that I, my dating history, um, five women in a row that I dated, uh, had previously questioned their own gender, um, as in a questioned whether they were female to male. Um, I pretty much exclusively dated tomboys. Yep. Um, I got teased in college that I was, uh, so gay in my preferences that they went back around the circle to straight again. Yep. Um, and I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. Uh, so it might just be, I have a very strong preference for the masculine attitude, even in women. Um, I don't know. There might be something to it. It might just be that the history of Western philosophy is almost entirely phrased in terms of, uh, the masculine energy. I need to think about that. That that's a really, that's a really interesting idea. I mean, there's maybe a lot of it that's like, I, I need to think about that a lot. I'm not entirely sure what I make of that, but it, it could be true. There was someone, I wonder how much of it is Western and how much of it is like, well, I don't know. I mean, there's, there was at one point, Will Durant was talking about the, the merger in certain art in India of like a kind of an amalgam of of Hindu and Muslim aesthetics. And he identified Hindu as more masculine and Muslim as more feminine. And I wasn't entirely sure how he arrived at that, but I could sort of see it too. I, you know, I could spitball all sorts of crazy shit here. Yeah. I encourage the, do the, it the, do it do the, it the explicit of culture is always masculine and the implicit of culture is always feminine hmm um which lends itself to certain types of philosophical writing maintaining the masculine air and and things like plays and stuff maintaining the feminine air yeah uh yeah i like that but i'm just kind of kind of throwing it out there i mean like what do you think this podcast is the ball you want <laughs> Uh, so, so <laughs> Andrew Yang, um, <laughs> do it. Uh, no, uh, well, y- Yang is Yang is feminine. No, yeah, no, Yang is masculine. Is it? Yeah, Yang I is the sun. Yin is Yin is uh feminine. Are you sure? I was. Yep. I swear it was the opposite. Okay. Anyway, go on. Yeah. So so. Anyways, I uh. So yeah. So I think that you need to have your your explicit and your implicit knowledge, and and this is like what what is man. Right? What is a miserable little pile of secrets? And and beyond just like what is the purpose of life, understanding who you are. Um so so to measure yourself, you need to understand what is not yourself. You need to understand where you stand in relation to things. And I think that you know the literature of knowledge gives you facts. Um and sometimes those facts are merely other people's opinions, right? But the literature of power lets you define where you stand in relation to other minds. Um, and sometimes it expands your ability to understand 
why those other minds operate the way they do. Um, so, so this is, I am a very, how would I put this? I am simultaneously, um, a very empathetic and unempathetic person at the same time, uh, which is to say, I think that it is very easy for me to, um, build a set of incentives on behalf of another person that lets me understand why they've come to the perspective that they have. Mm -hmm. It's very hard for me to get a snapshot of what that perspective might look like. I don't entirely understand that. So like I might be able to very easily understand why, um, what, what kind of mindset someone might have, um, in the DSA or whatever to, to pick somebody who is perhaps not a, a, a mortal enemy, but an ideological enemy. Right. Uh -huh. But it's very hard for me to get myself into their vibe, even temporarily. Right. Um, whereas the reading the literature of power, so to speak, it doesn't quite bridge me there, but it gets me closer to the point where I can like get a little bit more of the feel of a broader range of people and like what it feels like to be them, not just build an incentive analysis of where they are. Um, and I, I think understanding the breadth of human emotion and mind is important. And unlike, unlike the, you know, the so-called literature of knowledge, you have to read a lot more of their literature of power because there's, there's kind of, you have a, a intersection, you have kind of a mapping function between a set of people reading and a set of things being written about, right? And there is a lot of the stuff in the so-called literature of power that doesn't touch my, touch me at all. It doesn't speak to me, right? What's, what, what would you identify as the literature of power? Most classical literature. Okay. So that would be... Classical um, as in antique? Um, classical as in has survived the test of time. Okay. Um, Paradise Lost is a great example. Interesting. Okay. Um, so, so like what, what makes Paradise Lost something that would be in the literature of power? Understanding what would bring a moral entity to a fall. Okay. Um, now maybe it's not a great one for me because I think Paradise Lost, you know, the, the, um, the Satan of Paradise Lost is perhaps default too sympathetic to me. Uh -huh. um, and I say that as someone who uh, used to play Sympathy for the Devil as a theme song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but uh, I'm trying to think of specific examples. There's been all sorts of these small stories that I've read um, over, over time, uh, over the last few years that I'd have to go back and look at my notes, but just little things. Um, you know, oh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, God, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of, uh, was it, was it Connor Lamb trying to communicate about like what it feels like to be a child going to your first play mm -hmm. and then how that impacted his life. Interesting. Uh, um, stuff, stuff like that. It's just for whatever reason, sometimes these pieces of literature will strike you in a way that let you see from an additional perspective that you couldn't before. And uh, Thomas De Quincey goes into a lot more detail um, in his essay on this. So, like okay, I said, Thomas De Quincey had this. This is his essay: literature of knowledge and literature of power. Got it. Okay. Um, and so, so you kind of want to cultivate your intrinsic, which is the breadth 
of human experiences that you can understand and the breadth of communication with human experiences that you can do. Um, what would conventionally be called broadening your horizon, I guess. Would you say that anything human is alien to you? I think alien is a non-specific term. I think that there is a range of human attitudes that I cannot see a route from where I am to where they are. Um, but I can't see any human expression that I simply could not understand at all where they stood. Merely ones that I'm less sympathetic to. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And I guess... I, I think alien alien is such a hard word, right? Um, for some... The alienness of a thing is is it's abused a lot um and i'm gonna i'm show my weeb side um so so in a certain very popular franchise uh anime franchise anime and related media franchise um having a sufficiently uh distorted and alien view of the world in combination with having um magical capabilities gives you the ability to impose your own world on the world as a whole temporarily is a super ability, so to speak. Which series is this? This this is fate. Okay, sure. Except obsessive self-sacrifice, martyrdom, um, inability to consider yourself in the scales weighing a situation, right? Is not actually that rare or alien all told. It's very much something that is, while not common, reasonably, you know, it does show up reasonably often historically um and i'm you know it's it's i guess it's a matter of dispute um of of what exactly made it work in the setting but the description of it as totally fundamentally alien always struck me as off it's just it's not common right yeah um martyrs are a thing that's they're not even that rare of a thing yeah um but what do you make of martyrdom complex okay um i'll i'll come back to that um so yeah so you have you have the body so you have strength uh cardiovascular endurance um and uh coordination you have the mind extrinsic and intrinsic um you have uh the emotional so emotional kind of is is wishy-washy i think part of the emotional piece is in the intrinsic um which overlaps with the mind right and part of it is social uh, I think that you need to cultivate um, social connection specifically. So I think one of the reasons why previous generations recently have had issues socially is that things where they could lean on uh, default social environments historically, human historically, yeah, just disappeared. Yep. So so now it's kind of our generation is learning, and, and to a degree the ones below us, but it seems to be app facilitated, which will disappear with those apps. Um, needs to build these more rigorous, explicit social support networks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just make friends. You have to go out of your way to make friends because they're not just going to be people that you happen to go to the same church as them for 40 years. That doesn't happen as much anymore. That's why like, I believe the majority of people's like, people they talk to are at work, right? That's, that's not true. horrifying. Right. That's not true for me, but I believe it is. I believe, and again, I'm not 
do, looking up reference information while we talk here. It might not be true for a lot of people, though. I mean, like, I think everybody who's in our, like, very broad sphere on Twitter gets a lot out of it. I hope so. Yeah, anyway. but we're, we're kind of weird. Yeah. Have you looked at how normal people use Twitter? I've looked at my coworkers on Twitter. It's fucked up. Like... It's like a mixture of marketing and commenting on brands. <laughs> I hate it. Or just like tweeting about what sandwich they have, but not even tagging anyone. I mean, I, I sort of do that. And not, but... they also don't expect engagement, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just like, I'm here, world, right? Um, and uh, so you have to make friends. Uh, and then finally, I think that that you need to do something somewhere in here, and this can all this can fall into kind of my last my last category, which isn't something for for living a good life necessarily. It is it is not a immediate component of living a good life, but it is a nice fundamental of living a good life, which is career. Um, you need to map the efforts that you're putting with what you want out of life. If you don't have a viable way to support what you desire. You need to tweak what you're doing or you need to tweak what you desire. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, and, and so I think generally you want to have a cons- some consistent effort to improve your career. Um, and so this kind of actually pulls back on how I do when, when I was doing it, when I was playing with it, life coaching work is breaking down this, this list. And you I did life coaching. I, I did a little demo of it before COVID hit. Um, I think that, I mean, I, there wasn't criticism. Yeah, like, no, I it, totally it, it, it was it was interesting. Uh, I learned a little bit about where gaps in my programs were. Um, I think that um, I should probably do some writing under my real name about about the more fundamentals before I touch that stuff again. Um, but that's basically how my breakdown works: is you have you have your body. So, um, what are you doing with it? But also, what are you putting into it? Nutrition, right? Uh, macronutrient, micronutrient breakdown. You have your mind. What are you putting into it? What are you taking out of it? Um, you have your career. Uh, do you have goals? How are you achieving those goals? Uh, and you have your social life, right? Um, is it where you want it to be? If not, what are the steps that you can take to, to reach it? And I think just breaking things down and then saying, I can reach these goals in each of these things. Um, that's not, that itself is not living a good life, but it's how you can get to that point. Um, and then there's a je ne sais quoi, right? Is are the things that I'm doing here satisfying whatever it is that makes me me, right? Um, and so you have to pick things that are satisfying to you. I could make more money being a dev. I'm smart enough that I could have learned to just be a dev, but I don't really find dev work as satisfying as I find technology strategy um, or even systems theory on a very like analogical scale thinking about how different types of systems align is more interesting to me than like web service work. And I'm not saying anyone finds web server or that many people find web service work intrinsically interesting, but there are people who find it interesting enough to write code and work with that stuff that they can continue to do it for their career. And I'm much more interested dealing with technology as application of science and engineering to solve human problems in a way that is sustainable via the market like that's that is a different problem and it too has a lot of really boring ass grunt work but that boring ass grunt work is stuff that i can deal with towards the satisfaction of my job just like the boring ass grunt work of dealing with code reviews and pull requests is something that people deal with to get with the satisfaction of their job and dev work oh i love boring ass grunt work <laughs> like literally the 
the the work that I've enjoyed most in my life has been chopping wood. Yeah. Like, hell yeah. Enlighten me. Let me go and chop wood. I'd love it. Yeah. And so all of this kind of comes together to like building a strong foundation, right? Like you need the, I think that you need most of this on average. And I say on average because there are absolute people who have lived life who barely touch, who have never touched a book, right? And there's people who have lived a good life who are incredibly unhealthy. And there's people who have lived good lives who have absolutely no socialization. Um, Pillarites, for example. Um, the Oh, yeah, yeah. The stylites? Stylites? Was it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but on average, it's really hard to assume that you're going to be one of those things ahead of time, unless you know yourself really well. Yeah. And even if you do know your, think you know yourself really well, you can be wrong, right? So I'm never going to advise to a person unless they are made actively miserable by one of the things that I'm suggesting to them, even after persisting for some time, right? That they go, take this, right? If you are drastically overweight, no offense, I'm going to suggest that you try to get into shape because your endocrine system and your, you know, your neurotransmitters and stuff will probably work better if you're in shape. You will probably be a happier um, if you have a very narrow view of the world that leaves you frustrated all the time, I will probably advise you to go read old books. Um, not just, you know, old books are nice because the things that survive are often better, not necessarily the best because there is like a random factor to it better. Yeah. Um, and also they will point you at a broader perspective that isn't necessarily just about the one thing that's frustrating you. Like I'm not asking you to go read MAGA blogs or something. But maybe it exposes you to a third, fourth, fifth, sixth way of looking at the world that makes you realize just how wide everything is, right? Yeah. Um, if you don't have any friends, I'm going to suggest that you go talk to people. Like, there's this, like, set of fundamental assumptions. And once all that's there, that's still, that may not be enough to kind of live, air quote, live a good life. And I think the thing that people are missing is they need to see, and this goes back to what I was talking about, what life does, right? Is the human tendency, the thing that makes us humans, is to look at the world around us and take the raw pieces of the world around us. And for the humans as a whole, it's the natural world. For individual humans, it may also be the human world, right? And to rearrange that those elements in a way that brings them more under the human purview. So to say that again, what we do is we take a unarranged or differently arranged set of items and we arrange them in a way that makes them feel more like us. And then we see ourselves in it and we say it is good. And that's kind of what I think of as like what brings the satisfaction right? This is why I think developers have much higher job satisfaction, less alienation in their jobs than many people, is a developer can look at his code, not not all code and not all developers, but he can look at his code and he can see his mind in his code. Same for, same for PMs to a degree, right? Yeah. You, you see your choices reflected. What was within has become without. Right. Um, this is where I think alienation of labor comes from, from a, not from an economic, but from a moral perspective, is in a, in a really true a production line. You can't see yourself in your labor anymore. Do you, would you say this, this kind of vibes a little bit Jordan Peterson-esque to me? It, it's, it's, I think, I think, and I don't mean, I think, no, 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 I'm not insulted. I think 
the problems and the solutions are actually pretty well understood. Yeah. We just have to keep rephrasing them until somebody, until there's an opening to solve some of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that's why I, I say that you need to do something that the, the people that it is most important to do writing, right. Are not writers. Yeah. Writers are the least important people to tell to write. Sorry, writers. The most important people to tell to write are your friends and your family and normal people. So they can see something of themselves in the world. Um, this is this is also why, again, spitballing psychology, because all psychology is fake. So anything I say is just as realistic as what your grandma's stereotypes are. Yep. Um, this is also why I believe one of the most effective ways to uh, uh, deal with depression is for people to go volunteer at an animal shelter. Huh. That uh, checks out, actually. Is because one of... The thing about love is... And this touches on other stuff I've written on elsewhere that I won't go too deep into. But the thing about love is love is about being recognized as a mutually engaging entity. Like when when you feel loved, you need to feel like the entity you're engaging with, whether it's a person or an animal or an organization, sees you and your agency. They don't have to actually see you in your agency, but you need to have that impression, right? So when you're volunteering at an animal shelter, you're you're getting some sense of your raw self being appreciated by that animal, and yeah. I think that's why it it like it justifies your existence, not as an economic unit like you, but as like you as a distinct thinking entity. You are broadcasting your will out into the world, and it is impacting something in a positive fashion. This feels vaguely Christian. It's Love not. My it's actually blasphemous more than anything. Interesting. My, my taking mo- care of animals in a shelter is blasphemous. No, my moral philosophy is all about the divinity of the self. Uh huh. Which is to say that I arbitrarily can assign moral worth to things because I say so. Um, hmm. The the divine spark of value lies within me personally, and anyone else who just says they want it feels quicker. It's probably closer to Taoist than anything. Hmm. Okay, that's fine. Uh. Uh. Chad Lausa. Or, or meme Taoist, if anything. Yeah, I'm not sure there's any difference. Uh, Ch- Chinese fantasy novel Taoist, within all of us lies the potential for godhood. Uh, except godhood is uh, purely about arbitrary semantics here. Yeah. Um, so, so, but you want to see your agency reflected in the world. And that's why I think most people need to do something creative. Um, and that's also why we people need to have kids. Okay, yeah, we should we should maybe close out on that. Uh, pardon me, partly because I have gotten a weird headache, but also, um, kids. Uh, so I just had a kid. You just she, had a kid. I'm getting ready like to have a kid. Two and a half, three weeks old now. I can't quite remember. I can, but I'm adding some fuzz. And uh, your wife is twenty. Uh, 20, she she is it. She is late twenties weeks. She is she is somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, so. How has that affected you? It or- hasn't. <laughs> the unmoved mover. All right. Um, I think that it affects people who don't dwell on a certain type of thought. Whereas I've been thinking about immortality for a very long time. And I have written about immortality privately uh, quite a bit. Um, you haven't noticed any of the hormonal shifts? Not in the slightest. Interesting. Um, Wait. I- Wait until wait until your kid's born. And it's very possible that that's gonna gonna be a change. Um, you know, it certainly was for my own dad. 
but I can't, I, I can't help but wonder if this is just kind of my default. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll close, I'll, you know, we'll close out. We'll, we can talk about kids. We can talk about legacy. I think people, people talk about what drives rich people, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and, and the, the default meme answer is power, but I don't think that's right. Like we're talking about the really top tier. Okay. Yeah. I think it's legacy. I think that the thing that drives nearly every living creature and with humans more uh, self-aware than others is a desire for your will to persist. Um, And in a less metaphorical sense, uh, this leads to uh, the pursuit of immortality or the belief in immortality, right? If you believe that thing you are doing will make, will make your soul uh, survive immortally. Um, then it's satisfied. Uh, but more metaphorically, the desire for legacy um, leads us to do things, create organizations, write our, our essence of self into a book, leave monuments. Um, and again, I'll come back to this second. Having children is the easiest way to leave a legacy. Uh, the, the easiest way to satisfy part of those urges is to have a child. You are your half of your genes, so to speak, uh, are being persisted on half per kid per kid. Right. And obviously there's a, there's a, um, one over and greater than or equal to three or you're doing good. You have one over two to the end fall off. Right. Um, but so it has very high success with an immediate fall off. All the other options have very low success with slower fall off. Um, religions, well, first of all, you've only got like five in the world. So your options, you, you got to really succeed. And who, who do you think have been the most successful people in legacy in history? And what, why is it either Jesus Christ or Genghis Khan? I actually think it's Muhammad. Really? Yeah. Explain yourself. Um, so Genghis Khan... Is it's one over nth whatever. Yeah. And and just in aggregate, sure, but like what what amount of Genghis Khan persists? And Jesus, uh, this is gonna be controversial, right? Yeah. But Jesus is one of those things where if you accept it, if you if if you accept facts about him, then he succeeded. But if you didn't accept facts about him, he didn't succeed. Whereas Muhammad. It's just like a historical, like his almost historical fact, right? There is really very little doubt about. There's not okay. There are not historicist mythicist camps of Muhammad, is what I'm saying. Hmm. Okay, but all right. So so let's let's combine Jesus and Paul, if you like. How much of what Paul believed as an individual, rather than what Paul believed institutionally, got passed down? Do you think there's a difference? Um, I think there's at least somewhat of a difference. Paul is not the primary reference for moral living for Catholics. Didn't he talk about faith, charity, and hope? Or uh... Sure, but like they don't pour over his entire life looking for examples when he did this or traded that. Like, you know. Yeah, I'm just saying like. If Buddha, maybe. Buddha, oh, Buddha, that's an interesting point. Buddha gets confusing though. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I actually, okay. So I'm moving away from, from Genghis Khan, but I mean, I guess, I guess I've been reading dominion. So this is the shit that I'm on about, 
But I don't know. I mean, like, what would which religion ultimately would you say drives the current moral order in the world? You know. I don't think there is a winner right now. Yeah. Okay, read Dominion. I I, I have a lot of things to read. I know. Me too. I haven't actually finished reading. I'm I'm 40 pages in, as I said. I so. I um I don't think that there's a winner right now. Um I think there is very briefly a Christian world order. Yeah. Uh and I say very briefly because if you look at the world as a whole, um, you know, there were not particularly any East Asian superpowers very briefly from a right. historical perspective. Right. Um, I don't think that's the case now. Yeah. I mean, it has a plurality of power, but I don't think it has a majority of power. True. Um, and maybe if the U S was more explicitly a Christian nation, that would be different. Maybe it's Abraham. Um, if you do clustering, I think you can you can make it work. But I think a lot of people would dispute the clustering. Yeah. But no, I think children are a legacy. I think children are the fastest way to have a certain sense of continuity that's fulfilling for many people. It's not fulfilling for everybody. And I think that you have to fill the gaps with something that more immediately feels like you. I think it would be worthwhile for everyone to whittle or paint or take up cabinetry, uh, a physical manifestation of their internal creative mind that made them feel like they were leaving behind a legacy an impact on the world. Um, as far as kids for me, like they're going to be their own people, obviously. Right. Um, and they will be more likely than the average person or even the not so average person to be able to contain my memes. Um, so even from a mimetic, mimetic followership perspective, children are better than creating, you know, an organization uh, in your name. Um, I, uh, I'm excited, but it's not, I don't really, I've wanted kids my whole life. So there's not really a change there. Um, it's, it's very, I have a very selfish perspective on this and I, you know, the, the, the selfish man's justification is that everyone is selfish. I'm just aware of it. Right. Uh huh. Um, is that the selfish man's justification? It's, it's kind of, it kind of is. Do I need to point to the Abraham Lincoln selfishness anecdote? I'm unfamiliar. I've, if you listen to my podcast, you I don't listen to it. anyone's podcast. That's fair. So Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln and a guy are going along in a stagecoach and they're arguing about, whether humans are motivated by selfishness and Abraham Lincoln is, is arguing that they are. And, you know, his, his uh, interlocutor is saying, no, no, humans are deeply altruistic. So they're driving along and they go past a field full of mud and there's a pig drowning this field of mud because I guess that's something that pigs will do. And Abraham Lincoln orders the stagecoach stop and he hops out with his top hat and his new suit and he jumps into the mud and wrestles the pig back to dry land and saves its life. And he gets back in the carriage and, you know, his, his clothes and his suit are ruined and his top hat's bent because, you know, pigs are huge. And his inner life is like, well, I guess that really answers this question. And, and, you know, Abraham Lincoln says, all right, you know, let's get on. And he says, well, no, no, 
Quite the contrary. I would have felt terrible if that pig had drowned. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the, it's the, is it self-aware? And this goes back to kind of um, legibility being causing problems sometimes. Okay. Um, which maybe is a topic for another time. Uh, but uh, children are just the best way for me to persist by will. And there's definitely a sacredness aspect to this that I think I violate, but I don't have to reward my children with 100% of the results of my own life efforts. I can reward them proportionally to the degree to which they advance my will. Holy shit. Holy shit, dude. And, and it's, it's in general. So a significant portion of the will is just seeing my genetics passed down. Right. Uh huh. But it can also be, you know, I can make it so that they get their inheritance for $1 for every dollar that they make on their own. Right. That's, that is a function that says, I want to see success attached to the family name, right? I'm not rewarding them merely for existing. That's interesting. Are you, are you familiar with my dad? I have met your dad uh, twice, I think. Once or twice. Yeah. So at one point, so my, my dad's a psychometrician. And we were driving, we were talking about me going to college at one point, And I mentioned that I was thinking about majoring in psychology. And he slowed the car down and he pulled over to the side of the road and he didn't look me in the eye because he doesn't do that much. But he said, well, all right, robot. I just want you to know that if you major in psychology, I'm going to disown you, <laughs> but I'm not going to disinherit you. So if you have to do that, go ahead. So in some sense, my dad is the opposite of you. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's, it's like, you know, obviously I'll, I'll, you know, do what I can for my kids. Right. Um, legibility. What am I getting out of it? My genetics are persisted, right? And I want to see them succeed, but I want to see them succeed in certain ways. And it's just, you know, it's the, it's the, um, uh, sir, are you calling me a whore thing? Right. And it's, uh, well, we've already established you are, we're just determining the price. Right, right. Right. Everybody has a limit. Not everybody. Most people have a limit by which they would disinherit their kids. Right. Which means there is some broaching factor. For me, it's just I'm more, I think, more cognizant of where that is. And I'm also willing to, I think, incentivize going down one track or another, but I want to do it in such a way that given two alternatives that are appealing to them. Oh, shit. Okay, we're reconnected. Go on. Given two alternatives that are appealing to them, they will pick the one that I would like more, but not enough that given an alternative that would make them miserable versus one they want more that they'd pick the one that would make them miserable. That's kind of where I'd like to be. Interesting. I, I have no illusions about how much I can incentivize my kids to do anything. And I am extremely confident if I tried to force something, it would backfire in my face. Oh, absolutely. Quite aggressively. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, and if I consider like what it would have taken for me to go to med school, for instance, which is what my dad wanted me to do. Huh? Um, it would take quite a bit, so I can sh- kind of, I can find a play with it there, and I'm I am well aware that none of this is going to work, right? Okay. The best the best I can do is to raise them in a way that they do things that I think are good. Um. To I want them to live in a way that I would approve of, and saying it out loud like that sounds weird, but that's also just what humans have done through history, right? Yeah. I live in a way that I approve of. I want my kids to live in a way that I'd approve of, and what they what they approve of will probably differ a little bit from what I approve of. Um, 
But if I have what I think is a pretty coherent set of ethical beliefs, there's no reason to not teach it to them. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, do all the other legacy bits. You know, build a giant wall. Um, you know, call it Ortho's Wall. Very Chinese. Uh, I, was, I was thinking Hadrian, actually. Oh, well. Uh, you know, write write a, write a book on moral philosophy or something and living well. Um, try to start a cult. Um, you know, my wife has, has basically threatened me if I did sperm donation, so I can't do that one. Mine too. Women, what's going on? She probably got that from my wife. <laughs> no, no. Women, like, women do this all the fucking time. Like, uh, I mean, my, my ex wrote a comic about it. She yeah. was really mad. Well, it makes sense evolutionarily. But yeah. from their own genetic persistence perspective. And then, and then, you know, maybe, uh, plenty to go around ladies do my, do my best to, uh, to get longevity unlocked for my own sake. Cause that's really the number one, right. Is to persist as long as I can as myself. Everything else is a backup. Children are a backup. That's not Heracleitian. That's not at all Heracleitian in terms of, uh, it's soundness. Persist as long as you can as yourself, buddy. you're already not. Um, there is. It is, it is about self-recognition. So at each step, I want to recognize the second step, the step after as me. Okay. And even though I recognize that the arc might be such that me today won't recognize the theoretical me in a million years, if I would be so lucky as to survive that long, uh-huh. as long as each step is okay with it, I think it makes for a reasonable curve. Interesting. I need to think about that. I've been thinking about my own immortality for a long time. Um, and then, yeah, I guess, I guess... To conclude, um, because, you know, you have a headache and stuff. We live in a very atomized society. You said that. Um, I'm not sure what the fuck it means, but I think everyone's saying it, so it must be true. I think it's true. I think it's, it's, it's what we can say is that we live in a society that for whatever reason, certain things that used to be implicitly part of the guide rails of life have fallen away. And in general, the way I live my life and the way that I have successfully lived my life Um, and again, I'm not the richest or the strongest or the smartest or the most well-read, but I'm a pretty good number two on a lot of that. Um, just because of time balance is if you look at all of the different ways that are important to have fundamentals for living life well, and just make plans, not intense ones. You don't have to make intense ones like I do, but like, make sure that you're going down the checklist, right? Do the checklist before you take off and, uh, make sure you're hitting everything. Um, and you'll have a happier life. And then once you have those fundamentals, make sure that whether it's via kids or writing or art or whatever, that you get to regularly see a representation of your own inner state expressed in the world. And then finally, uh, when you take a moment to pause, ask yourself, is the only thing that I wish that I can have more time to keep living? And if it is, then you're really, you're fine. Okay. So that's kind of my, my closing remarks. Um, I know we talked about, um, we kind of mentioned another broad topic. We can schedule that for, for next month or the month after. We could talk about um, kind of bet hedging in, in Oh, right. We're going to talk about what the hell we're going to do with our lives once the world collapses. Yeah, bet, bet hedging in the world of tomorrow. Shit, yeah. But I think that's that makes good. a good follow-up episode. Um, and uh, maybe we'll see see who else comes on. Um, oh yeah, that would be fun as a panel thing. That would, you know, it might be interesting if we can actually get um, 
get my best friend. I know he haven't talked to him, but he might. Oh be yeah, he he'd be fantastic. Um, and you guys can talk because because we may all end up being neighbors. Uh, and that yeah, that'd be interesting, interesting uh, teaser. Um, yep, everybody check out my forum. Uh, it's for the American and culture. Uh, Techie right Aristilus dot X Y Z A R I S T I L L U S dot X Y Z named after Travis Corcoran's fantastic Powers of the Earth novels. Oh, nice. I'm, I'll put up a link too. Yeah. And, uh, yep. Feel free to ping me on Twitter at orthonormalist, uh, because I look at things a little bit differently. Uh, yeah. Yep. Great. That was a good follow. <clears throat> Thanks for having me on. Yeah. My pleasure. Like totally my pleasure. I mean, you introduced me to my wife, right? Yeah. So I'm so. in your gut. <laughs> um, yeah, no, ab- absolute pleasure talking. I hope the audio is okay. I guess we'll find out shortly yep. and I'll, I'll fuck around with it if it's not. Yep. And, uh, yeah, thanks all for making it through almost two hours. Yep, no worries. <laughs> cool. Take care.